0: On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. And Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Most of you will recognize the name Billy Ray Cyrus. He probably broke onto the scene with Achy Breaky Heart, but he also has produced more than a a dozen other albums. He is a singer, songwriter, television actor, certainly has had a very successful career. But Billy Ray tells about growing up. He was born in in Kentucky, and growing up in Kentucky, his mother and father got divorced when he was five years old. His father left. His mother took the two boys. And they really didn't see their father again. He just kind of left their world. And instead, he and his mother and his brother tried to make it on their own. Their mother, she didn't have a career. She didn't have a college education. She didn't have any special training. She really was going to have to do whatever menial job physically that she could find in order to try to keep a food, o- a roof over their head and food on the table. It was tough. And one of the things that Billy began to see is as the years would go by, every now and then, his mom would sell something personal that they owned. And he began to realize it's because she was having a rough spot and needed to kind of help make ends meet. He specifically remembered when, she was a- when he was eight years old. His mother loved to play the piano. She had never had formal lessons, She just played by ear. You could tell the family has a musical gene. Now She loved playing the piano. She had a piano that her mother had given to her. And it was her pride and joy, and she loved making music. But there came a time while he was eight that his mother put that piano up for sale, and she sold it. And again, he may have only been eight, but he understood what was happening, and he made a commitment I will do something to rectify that one day. When he was 17 years old, Billy had a great dream and his desire at that point was to have a car. Every 17-year-old boy wants a car. And so they were very poor and he was having to work hard in order to try to buy his own car. He was mowing jobs and doing whatever he could. He managed to save about $248. $248. Now, That wouldn't buy you a car, but this is back in the 1970s. It wouldn't take a whole lot more than that to kind of get you beat up jalopy. But when it came towards Christmas, his mother came home from work one day and she was just so upset and crying. She had gotten a job as a maid taking care of some people's homes, and there was a family that she took care of their home where she was wonderful. They had a piano and they let her play any time she wanted to play. It was her outlet. But that day, while she'd been there cleaning their home, when she was through, the lady said to her, I'm going to be selling this piano. And now she knew that her one place she could still have a piano and play was going away. When Billy saw how upset she was, unbeknownst to his mother, he went back to go visit his family. He went back to the lady and he said, I'd like to buy that piano. I have $248. And she said, well, I hope to sell that piano for a lot more than $248. But the more she thought about it and she thought about where the piano was going and thinking about a teenage son who was willing to sacrifice everything he had for his mother, she changed her mind. She said, all right. So Billy got his brother and a couple of buddies, and they went over to the house, and they got the piano, brought it back to the house and into the garage, covered it all up and hid it so she wouldn't see it. And then on Christmas morning, very early, before she got out of bed, he and his brother managed to get out there and roll this thing into the house and get it up beside the Christmas tree. So when his mother came out on Christmas morning, she walked into the room And there she saw this piano sitting beside the Christmas tree. And she just started crying. And then laughing. And then crying. And then laughing. And finally, Billy said, Well, come sit down and play this thing. She sat down and began to play. And and she said, How did you do this? He told her about the $248. And then she stopped and looked at him and said, Why did you do it? And Billy Ray Cyrus said, I just wanted you to know how much I love you. I believe that is the message, the fundamental message of our scripture lesson this morning. It is God saying to the world, I want you to know how much I love you. When John wrote his gospel, he knew that most people of faith in that day had a vision of God where God was the harsh judge. God was the one who was looking down on his people that if they made a mistake or got out of line, he was the one to punish them. He was angry, harsh, Judgmental. And so when John sits down to write this gospel, he wants to lay a foundation that changes our understanding of the very nature of God. And so he gives us this first miracle, the miracle of changing water into wine, right here at the beginning. Now, this morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series, Finding the Way. You and I started last week, and as Wendy was telling you just a few moments ago, reminding you we're all sharing in a church-wide Bible study where we read one chapter a, a week from the book of John. There are prayers to be prayed. There are questions to think about or to discuss. We're going to move through John. And last week we started with the first, book of, the first chapter in John, the first verse. In the beginning was the Word. The Logos, the Greek word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing was made without God. He was the light, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Last week, we looked at theology, all about the Word, Logos, the light that shines in the darkness. So that you and I can find our way and not be afraid. We find our way to become the person God has called us to be. So we were looking at that last week. This week we move on to chapter 2. And the first thing we read is about this wedding feast in Canaan of Galilee. Now you need to remember this story is not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Only in John. And for John to place it right here at the very beginning, scholars say it's probably the first miracle that Jesus did. Now, I think there's something theologically significant here. John always tells you a story about facts, but there's always an underlying meaning. And John has a meaning that he is sharing with us here about this story, something more. You see, when we look at this story... We're going to be talking about a wedding feast. Mary is there. Jesus and the disciples are there. And a wedding feast is a big deal. These people were poor. They were peasants. They were the oppressed. They didn't have much to celebrate. One of the things we know they celebrated in those days was a wedding. What would happen was the groom would come to get the bride. And then you didn't just take her back for the ceremony. No, the bridesmaids... Mides had lamps and the groomsmen were there and you would wander through the streets of the town as long as you could do it so everybody could wish them well. They would get to the groom's home. The groom's home typically was a room that he had added on to his parents' house. That's where they would originally live. So he was going to be moving back to this room. They would get to the home and then there would be this big wedding feast Now, it would not be a ceremony and a one-night celebration and then the couple leaves on a honeymoon like today. No, the feast would go on five, six, seven days in the home. This was a big deal. And so what we see right off the bat is that Jesus and Mary and the disciples are there at the party celebrating life, celebrating love. And the party is going on and it's Mary who recognizes they're running out of wine. Now some scholars say because Mary seemed to feel responsible here, and notice there are some other books other than our four Gospels that will say that Mary was the sister of the mother of the groom. And our Bible doesn't say that. We don't know that. And it doesn't really matter what we see is that Mary and Jesus are sensitive to a young couple who are about to be humiliated because they've run out of wine at this huge festival. So Mary goes to Jesus and she says to her son, they've run out of wine, you need to help them. And Jesus answers by saying, woman, what have you to do with me? My time has not yet come. Now that's always been an interesting statement. And people come back to look at that statement of woman. Now, when Jesus says woman, it's not like you and I would say woman today. If I went up to Marsh and said woman, <laughs> she'd slap me upside the head. Justifiably so. But no, that, that, In Jesus' day, to say woman was a term of endearment respect. Remember, when Jesus is on the cross, he is going to look out and see his mother Mary and say, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. No, this was a term of endearment. This was a respectful term, not a put-down term. My time has not yet come to be revealed. Well, that would be the cross. It's not yet time for people to see fully who I am. So when she says to help, Jesus says, what do you have to do with me? It's almost kind of like saying, look, don't tell me what to do. I'll take care of it, mother. I like that. Leslie D. Weatherhead, one of the great preachers in England years ago, said, that's what he's saying. It's, mother, I'll take care of it. And that makes sense that Mary would hear it that way because the next line, she says to the servants, do whatever he asks you to do. So that's how Mary heard it. Woman. Mom, I'll take care of it. She goes back to the party. Jesus then turns to the servants and says, Fill the jars of water to the brim. There were six jars of water by the front door. Twenty to thirty gallons a jar. The purpose is for purification, rites and cleansing. If you're out walking on the dusty roads and you get to a home, what people did was they had water by the front door, You were supposed to take off your sandals and they washed your feet. If you were a good Jew and you're eating a meal between courses, there was a purification ritual about how to pour water and it drip off your wrist and then how to pour water and it pour off your fingertips. You had purification between the courses and every meal to be a good Jew. So they had to have the water by the door. They had a big crowd there. They had six jars of water, probably 180 gallons. And so Jesus said, fill it to the brim. He told them to take some water, to dip some now, and take it to the steward. It's kind of like the sommelier, the person who's in charge of the wine for the night. Take it to the sommelier, and he gives it to the steward who tastes it and calls the groom and says, everybody always serves the best wine first. And after we've drunk enough to deaden the palate, then you serve the cheaper wine. But you've saved the best for last. That's the end of the story. That story talks about the fundamental nature of God. The gift of God's grace. And if we understand the story, we will change in the way that we trust God. The Word, the Logos, the light that shines in the darkness. That's what I want us to think about this morning as we look at the story. And I think John has two very important things to tell us. First of all, Jesus comes to the wedding feast. That matters. Jesus is no frowning saint. He comes to the wedding feast. He is there to celebrate life and love He is the incarnation. He is the one through whom we come to understand God. And where is God? At the wedding feast with joy and celebration. Jesus will say in the 15th chapter, I have told you these things, that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. This issue that God is seen as the angry harsh judge is being turned on its head the incarnation is at the wedding feast celebrating life and love showing compassion towards a young couple this is not life and death they're going to be embarrassed but it's not life or death and yet he cares He cares enough to change the water into wine and keep the party going. What a whole different concept of the nature of God and how God is seeking to reach out to us, to celebrate life. I have told you these things that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. John is setting the stage in the second chapter, the first story, to say... What's the Word like? What's the nature of God? He's at a wedding feast, celebrating life and love, caring enough to change the water into wine. That's how God looks at you. Recently, I've been reading a book by Maria Golf. It's been a great book. You remember, she is the wife of Bob Golf. And there's all kinds of books that they have out now building off of his first book, Love Does. And as I've been reading them, it got me to thinking about some of the stories I've read about Bob and Maria. But I loved the story that Bob Goff told about growing up as a child himself. Back when he was a young boy in elementary school, he got to playing Little League Baseball. I played Little League Baseball. He had such a love for baseball. And he said he was really very good at it except for that thing of throwing and that thing of catching. And he wasn't really very good at hitting. But he said, other than those three things, he was really great. He had a ball cap. He had a uniform. He had a glove. He had baseball cards. He loved baseball. He just didn't play it very well. He said his biggest problem was he was in a habit that whenever the pitcher threw, he would close his eyes and swing. And he said tying those two actions together was never helpful. Close your eyes and swing. Close your eyes and swing. You don't tend to hit the ball very much then. And as hard as he tried, he couldn't seem to break this correlation of these two things. So he and his coach came up with a plan. Bob was a rather big kid for his age. And they said, you know, if you'll just crowd the plate. Pitchers, when they're 10, 11 years old, they're still pretty wild. And if you'll just stand there, then you'll get hit. <laughs> so then you get to go to first base, you know, and so this will work. And so that's what Bob did. He would go to the plate, he'd crowd the plate, and he would stand there. And, and the whole season went by, he did not get a single hit. But he got hit 17 times. <laughs> so he was always getting on base by being hit. Well, he said when the season came to an end, they actually were good enough. They made the playoffs. And in the first game of the playoffs, they were tied in the fifth inning when he came to bat. And when he came to bat, the crowd started to chant, Hit him! Hit him! Hit him! (laughs) Which is okay. He understood they were being very supportive. This was the plan. But by the time you get to the playoffs, some of these pitchers, well, they're getting pretty good by now. They're a little more under control. And sure enough, first pitch, strike one, strike two. And Bob said he made a decision. If he was going down, he was going down in a blaze of glory. And so on the next pitch, when the pitcher threw, he closed his eyes and he swung. And he heard a thud. He'd never heard a thud before. He opened his eyes and realized he had hit the ball and it was climbing higher and higher. And he was standing there looking and people were shouting, Run! Run! He starts to run, but by the time he's at first base, he sees it sail over the center field fence. First hit of the season. Home run. He comes around. He's now the winning run. Breaking the tie, the team's all at home plate, they're all cheering, the people are cheering. He said, it was just like the movies. Well, the next week, early in the week, he he was home and his mom called out to him and said, you've got mail. He said, I never get mail. He went downstairs and there was an envelope. He opened it up and there was a card and it was in the shape of an apple. And it said, you're the apple of my eye. He opened it up and it said, wow, what a hit, Bob. You're a real player, love coach. And he just read that again. Wow, what a hit, Bob. You're a real player, love coach. It meant so much to him. He said that that was 40 years ago. And whenever he thinks back on his childhood, he always thinks back about that moment. That moment when the coach was saying, wow, what a hit, Bob. You're a real player. Love, coach. He said, I've never forgotten that moment. I think this was God saying, do you understand how special you are? Wow! Do you know how much I love you? This young couple, do you think they would ever forget this moment? When Jesus turned the water into wine and saved them from embarrassment, humiliation? That God would come and care about something even so small? They would never forget that moment. I have told you these things that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. John wanted to set the fundamental understanding of the nature of God right off the bat in his gospel as he is going to develop it all the way to the end saying, you don't have to be afraid to come before God. You are not so unworthy you can't come before God. This is not the angry, vengeful, judgeful God. This is the Logos, the Word, who's at a wedding festival celebrating life and love with compassion on a young couple. Do you understand the nature of God? If you and I were to look and think of God in those terms, how much easier is it to trust? To trust God to be the light through the dark nights so we can find our way. You don't have to be afraid. John's saying there's a different God. Secondly, when you come into the story, it's important to understand that Jesus creates the best wine and there's more than enough for all. The finest of wine. The sommelier takes the wine and tastes it and says, you've saved the best for last. It's amazing. But don't miss the point. There's now 180 gallons of it. That's more wine than they could possibly serve there at that party. This is supposed to be discussing the issue of God's grace. For John in his mind, what he is saying is God's love. It's the most wonderful love, the best, and there's more than enough for you and for all. There's so much, and it's so good. You save the finest to the end. Is the issue that God is angry and anxious to be judgmental and condemn and you have to be afraid? John will say in the third chapter, you'll read in two weeks, John says, God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Ah, John's giving us a foundation here. How to send His Son into the world not to condemn the world, not to condemn you, but that you might be saved through Him. I have told you these things that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. There's a Different way to look and experience the love of God. When you experience that kind of incredible richness of love, it changes the way you're willing to trust. And you and I know that another word for trust is faith. We have faith, we trust in God's constant love of us, His children. When you believe that God wants to bless you, to give you life, he sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. We know that love. I know that many of you probably listen to Natalie Grant. Natalie Grant is a very successful Christian singer. She um, uh, she's already won female vocalist of the year for Christian singers 5 times. She's been nominated for seven Grammys. She's now in her late 40s, and she's, she's an amazing lady. But I was reading her telling a story about her growing up. She grew up in Seattle, born, raised in Seattle. She was the youngest of five. And that's where she and her family lived, but her grandparents and all the aunts and uncles and cousins, they all lived in San Diego. So she said every year we had a tradition that when it came to Christmas, we'd load up the RV. And we would camp all the way down to San Diego. You move from seven people to finally get down to San Diego. And she said we'd set up a Christmas tree. We had all of our Christmas presents around. And it was so much fun camping as we drove down the coast to go be with family for Christmas time. She said when she was six years old, six years old, they set out to head for San Diego. Her father had made all the reservations. They'd drive a certain distance. He had them all lined out. One night they pulled into a trailer park with their RV. They had their assigned spot and they got all set up. She said she was looking out the window, and right next door there was another RV, and it was the coolest looking RV. It was silver. It looked like a silver bullet. I mean, it was an Airstream. But the more she looked at it at times, she began to realize that Airstream looked pretty old. In fact, when she looked, there was plastic on the windows. There was wood at the door. Her father, who had never met a stranger after they got set up, he went over to greet the people next door. He was gone for a while and when he came back, he was visibly shaken. He came back and he began to explain to the family that next door there was a family, a mother and a father and five children, much the same age as all of the grandkids. But this father had lost his job months ago. He had looked and looked and could not find one. He was doing odd jobs, anything manually that he could. But they had lost their home. Then they lost their car. Now they were living in this trailer and barely being able to make ends meet. And Natalie said, my father said, I'm going to teach you about Christmas this year. Let's start looking for all of our food. They got all the food out of the pantry. They got all the food out of the refrigerator, out of the backpacks, you name it. They pulled all the food together. They were going to take it next door and go give it to this family. And then her father said, Now I want each of you children to choose one present that you were going to get under the tree, and I want you to take it to one of these children. And Natalie said, Up to that point, I'd been with my dad. (laughs) But this thought of me giving up a Christmas present that I hadn't even opened yet really didn't set well and what really bothered her for months she had been asking for one gift is called real doll now this is back in 1977 we weren't as sophisticated as we are today with all of our toys It's called real doll and real doll was a doll that you could flip a switch and you could feed her a bottle and she would wet her diaper i mean how cool is that I mean, that's all she'd been asking for, real doll. That's what she wanted. And she kept looking at all those presents under the tree trying to figure out, did I get this or not? I mean, did I, I don't know. Did I get it? And now daddy's asking her to give away a present. And so she went in and started looking at them, and she's trying to figure it out. And she finally decided, if I got it, it's got to be this one. So she chose this one to give away. And then as they started to head over towards this RV, then she started thinking, what if I chose real doll? What if she's six-year-old mind starts working? She puts together a plan. If she sees this little girl start to open and it's real doll, she will move quickly before she can completely open it, grab the package, run out the door, and she will go hide till everybody goes to sleep, and then she'll have her doll. She's got a plan. They get next door. The family is stunned with this gift of incredible food and generosity. And then the kids cannot believe they're actually going to get a Christmas present. And so they start with the oldest, and they're giving them the present, and these kids are just blown away. Finally, it is to Natalie. She's the youngest, and she gives this present to this little girl, and this little girl starts to open it up, and it's real doll. And his little girl opens his package and she takes out this doll and she holds it to her chest. And she just starts to cry and cry. She cannot believe that she would receive such a doll as this. And Natalie said, I didn't grab it and run. Because this feeling came over my heart about this incredible gift of love. And she said, that moment changed the way that I looked at Christmas forever. Jesus came to change the way that we looked at God forever. Rather than a harsh, angry, vengeful father. John tells us the story of how the logo The logos, the word, the light is at a wedding festival. Celebrating life and love and joy. Changing water into wine to keep the party going. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world might be saved through him. I have told you these things that my joy might be in you. And that your joy might be full. It's when you and I change our fundamental understanding of our relationship with Almighty God, with the Word, with the Logos, with the light, it changes your ability to trust. To trust the light that shines in the darkness and is going to help you find your way. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.